Well, we are going to continue our study tonight in the book of Exodus, and so I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 25, chapter 25. Now, tonight, uh, kind of kind of starting a little mini-series within a series uh, that we've been doing in our study of Exodus, and the little mini-series I've entitled, God's Pattern of Worship, God's Pattern of Worship, and Three sermons that are going to make up this little mini-series. We're going to look at the place of worship tonight. Next week, we're going to look at the priesthood. Well, maybe not next week. No, not next week. Ken's preaching next week, so he may may not do that. I don't know if he wants to. No, he doesn't want to do that. Okay. He's going to preach a sermon regarding uh, surrounding baptism. Well, the next sermon that I'm in is the priesthood, and then we're going to look at the, the practice of worship. Uh, so that's kind of the three little mini-series. And tonight, we're going to look at the place of worship Now, our text or our content that we're going to cover tonight really covers most of chapters 25, 26, and 27. We're not going to read all of those three chapters tonight because that will take up too much time. But if you would like to, I would encourage you to do so. It is one of those chapters, three chapters, that if you're reading through Exodus in your quiet time or in your devotional life, you know, it's one of those ones that's a bit of a hard slog to get through. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of uh, instructions, detailed instructions that God gives to Moses. Uh, but the details are certainly important. And so I'm trying to balance tonight a, uh, uh, an explanation of the details, but not getting bogged down in these details as well, because uh, we want to see what God has for us. But, you know, if you were to think of some of the most important buildings that have ever been built or are currently standing in history, what some of the buildings that come to your mind? In my mind, I think, you know, the tallest building in the world currently is the the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Uh, It's a massive structure uh, going, I think, 828 meters up into the air. It's the tallest building in the world. Uh, if you think of other significant buildings, ancient buildings, or even, you know, ones that are still around, thinking of the Taj Mahal or maybe the Roman Colosseum, maybe you think of the Great Pyramids of Egypt. These are massive structures with great significance in history. Maybe even the Sydney Opera House gets a little look in there just for its architectural uh, appeal. But when you think of important buildings, you don't usually think of a 100 by 50 cubit tent. That doesn't often spring to mind. How long is a cubit, you say? Well, nobody really knows, apart from the fact that most people think it's the length from someone's elbow to the tip of their finger. So it's really a kind of a, uh, depends on how long your arms are, is the length of how long your idea of a cubit is. But regardless, this tent, this tabernacle, is by far one of, if not the most important structure ever built. It's not important or significant because of its size, but because of its purpose, because of what it stands for, because of what it is for. And we've been studying this book of Exodus as we're seeing God's journey or God taking God's people on their journey from Egypt into the promised land and all of the amazing events that take place from uh, the beginning all the way until they're going to get ready to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. 
Uh, it's hard to p- pick a, a most significant event because there are so many which are indeed absolutely significant. Uh, we've seen the affirmation of the covenant that God has entered into this covenant relationship with his people. And the nature of that old covenant that God entered into was a covenant that was established on grace of God's grace of redeeming his people. But it was enjoyed through their obedience. That great blessing was attached to the people's obedience to God's covenant commands. And under this old covenant included in this Mosaic covenant is God's pattern for worship. How is God to be worshipped in this old covenant? God, if you think about it, has every single right to demand of his people, both under the old covenant and under the new covenant, to demand and to define how he is to be worshipped. It is God who defines worship. It is God who uh, demands our worship. God had every right to demand the worship of his people under the old covenant, and he has the, every right to demand our worship under the new. Uh, unlike the gods of old and still today, we don't get to decide or determine how God is to be worshipped. He tells us how he is to be worshipped. And under the old covenant, Israel was given strict instructions on the place of worship, the priesthood, and the practice of worship. And that's going to take up our three little mini-series, three uh, sermons on our little mini-series over the next couple of weeks. But as we embarked on this short, short journey on these three aspects of worship, I hope and pray that as we look at this detail, we will see the absolute wisdom of God. The place, the priesthood, and the practice are all given to us, and they serve as what we call types or pictures, that when we put them all together, and we put all of these little pieces together, they essentially form what we would call a a mosaic, not saying mosaic as in the Moses, but a mosaic, a a series of little uh, pictures that form one great big picture as they reveal and display The person of Jesus Christ. As I said, God goes to great lengths. If you read chapters 25, 26 and 27 and even further, giving great detailed instructions on the various aspects of worship and dimensions and and uh, specifics about every little piece of furniture and every size of uh, of every little piece that goes into the building and the practice of his worship. And it's hard because we need to both pay attention to the detail, but also not lose sight of the big picture of what's going on. Because there's a danger of both dismissing the detail and thinking that it's just, you know, God, uh, you know, giving them details for the sake of details. But there's also a danger of kind of obsessing over them. Uh, as I said, these details serve as types or pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but we do have to caution ourselves because some people try to read too much into every little detail, trying to make things which are not actually there. But on the other side, some people dismiss the details and think that they have no significance whatsoever. For example, some scholars have written, uh, these would be more of the liberal scholars, that the only purpose of the altar of incense in the tabernacle was to keep the flies away. Kind of like a giant citronella candle. 
that God would set up to keep the flies away. That's the only purpose of the altar of incense. However, on the other hand, some people try to read every Christ into every little ring and every little uh, uh, ornament and every little thing that is in there. And we don't want to do either of these things. So with that in mind, let us talk about the place of worship. Exodus chapter 25. And we'll just read the first few verses to set us up here. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold and silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set, and the ephod and the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. The first point in the place of worship is the purpose of this tabernacle, the purpose of this tabernacle. Why did, why build this tent? That's essentially what it is. It's just a, it's all it is. It's a tent. Why build this tent and uh, all of the furnishings and the trimmings and the things that go into this structure? Well, verse 8 tells us the purpose really behind it, and also it's kind of written into the very name of the very word tabernacle. The word tabernacle literally means a dwelling place. It's a tent, uh, but a tent is not just a tent. A tent is a place for someone to dwell. Verse 8 says, let them make me a sanctuary, which literally means a holy place, that I may dwell with them, that I may be amongst them, that I may live with them. Uh, God desires and expresses this desire to dwell, to live and to abide with his people and for his people to dwell with him. And if you think about it in a way, this is really God's desire right from the very beginning of creation and all the way through to the consummation of all things that God's desire right from the beginning was to to have a people that he would dwell amongst and that they would dwell with him, that he would be their God and they would be his people. That is God's desire right from the beginning. And you can see this in the very beginning that when God created man, Adam, uh, uh, that God would would walk with him in the garden. It was a common thing for God to walk and talk and to commune and fellowship with Adam in the garden. Uh, Here again in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple, these were structures where God's very presence would dwell, contained, veiled through these structures, but he would essentially dwell with his people. As we know the story, maybe we don't know the story, but sadly through rebellion and ongoing rejection of God and the breaking of his covenant, the glory of God departs from the tabernacle at times and the temple and God's presence leaves the people and they become Ichabod. The glory of God has departed and the glory leaves the people. God no longer dwells with his people until we get to John chapter 114 when the Bible says, and the word became flesh and what dwelt among us. God 
God's glory veiled in human flesh came back to earth as God once again was amongst the people. Uh, Both Peter and Paul refer to our bodies as earthly tabernacles or temples. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we are told. That the Spirit of God literally dwells in the hearts of those who believe. God lives inside of you. And it's, we are essentially the temple of the Holy Spirit, using that analogy there. And then one day in Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 to 3, as we see the consummation of all things, the Apostle John says, And I saw this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, what? The dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And so you see this theme of God dwelling with his people right from the beginning all the way through to the end. And so this is the purpose of the tabernacle. This was in one sense, we could say that one of the purposes of the tabernacle was for fellowship And when you look at where God sets up his tent in the camp, where is it? It's right in the middle. That's where God's tent, God's dwelling place is set up in the camp. Right in the center of all the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the fellowship of God is the centerpiece. The fellowship with God is the centerpiece of their community. It's also interesting to note that one of the other names that's given to this tent is the tent of meeting. It was where Moses would go and meet with God. God would give him instructions to give to the people. It was where Moses and the high priest would meet with God. It was a tent of meeting. It was a place of dwelling for God himself to be with his people. But another purpose, not only was it to be essentially a place of fellowship with God, but it was also to be the place of worship. Fellowship and worship. Uh, the word sanctuary, when he says, build me a sanctuary, it literally means a, a holy place. Now, that's the one theme, really, don't you get right through Exodus, of the holiness of God. Anywhere God is, is a holy place. When he arrives in the burning bush, when he appears in the burning bush, it is a holy place. It's holy ground. When he indwells, when his presence indwells the tabernacle and eventually the temple, that becomes a holy place. It's not holy because of the gold or the type of tents or the fabric that's used. It's not holy uh, because of anything that they've used to build it. It's holy because God is there. And wherever God is, that place is holy. And so this tabernacle serves as the centerpiece of Jewish worship. It's interesting, the very first act that we read here in Exodus 25 in building the tabernacle was that the people were to give an offering. This speaks of worship. They were to give something which they had over to the building of this tent, this tabernacle. We must remember that all forms of worship demand an offering and a sacrifice. Even if your God, little g, is something other than the one true and living God, even if your God is, is sport or money or whatever it is, all of those things demand a sacrifice from you. They demand a sacrifice of your time, your energy, your loves, your passions, and they demonstrate your love and devotion. 
And so this tent, this tabernacle was where the people would eventually bring their offerings daily to the priests. It was the center around the Jewish feasts. And of course, it was the place where one day on the day of atonement in the year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and bring the blood of the sacrifice to sprinkle into the altar of God. Jewish worship centered around the tabernacle and eventually the temple. It was the place of fellowship and it was the place of worship. That's its purpose. This is what God intended it to be. But what about the pattern? How, how was this tent constructed? And again, this is where the detail gets involved. And so uh, we're going to go through the various, or I'm going to talk about just basically go through the various uh, aspects and furnishings that God gave the people of Israel to follow to build this tent. And we're not going to go deep into the detail of all of these things, but then at the end I'll make the connection as to the purpose of all of these things. Well, first of all, of course, uh, the, the tabernacle consisted of a tent. It was a, that's essentially what it was. It was a, uh, a tent, not a huge one, 100 by 500 cubits. So whatever, uh, however long Moses's arm was or whatever, that's, that's the, uh, the length of it. Not a huge, not a huge place. But this was divided into two sections. The first section called the holy place, which was a place that the priests could only go, uh, that they could go in uh, daily. Uh, and then there was the thick veil, which divided the holy place from the what we call the holy of holies. And you didn't go into that place except the high priest went in once a year on the day of atonement. And so you have this tent divided into two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies. When God gives them instructions in verse 10, uh, and he starts what I, with what I think, he, he kind of essentially starts from the Holy of Holies, the furnishings in there, and kind of makes his way outside the tent. But starting at the most important place, the Holy of Holies, he tells Moses to build what we call the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testament, uh, the Ark of Testimony. In verse 16, he says, you shall put into the Ark of Testimony that which I give to you. What was the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it was just simply a wooden box made of acacia wood, but all of that box was covered in pure gold. Eventually, inside that box was placed the tablets of the law, a pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that eventually budded, which signified that his family would be the high priestly and the priestly family. All of those things were put inside of this box. On top of that box was a lid, again, made of uh, wood covered in pure gold, which uh, we call the mercy seat. It's the only seat that you find in all of the, uh, the tabernacle furnishings. But you didn't want to sit down on that seat. That was not for the priests. That was for God. Uh, on top of that mercy seat, that lid which covered and covered the law and covered the, uh, the manna and covered the rod that budded. On top of that, you had these cherub, these golden angels. You can see them there with their wings outstretched and they touched right in the middle. What was all this for? Well, essentially, this was a representation of the very throne of God. We read about this, we get a glimpse of this in Isaiah chapter 6, don't we? When Isaiah gets a vision of the throne room of God, and what does he see there? He sees the cherub, the angels, circling the throne of God, covering their face with two of their wings, covering their feet with two of their wings, and two of them, they're flying, crying out all day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so there, essentially, is a 
tiny little representation of the very throne of God. But you know what's not there? There is absolutely no image of God anywhere in the tabernacle. There's no idol. There's no little statue. There's, there's, there's no representation. There's no physical representation of God. Why? Because one day the very presence and glory of God would there dwell on the top of that mercy seat in between these two angelic beings as the Shekinah glory would fill that tent. There's the Ark of the Covenant. Separating the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, from the holy place is a very thick veil. Uh, this was not a bedsheet type veil. This is a, a veil of thick woven fabric that would shield the Holy of Holies from the holy place. It had a very specific purpose. It would shield people from the glory of God. And it would also keep people away from looking into and trying to gaze upon the presence of the Lord. It was for their protection. Because we know to stand in the presence of God, you could not contain the glory that was there. You could not stand in that presence. And so this veil would, would essentially keep people out from going into the very presence of God. And of course, we know that the high priest was allowed only through that once a time every year. That's the, you have the veil. Coming out from the veil, you have what's called the altar of incense. It's not mentioned in this passage, but in Exodus chapter 30, uh, God tells Moses to place an altar of incense. This is not the large citronella candle to keep all the, uh, the flies away. Uh, this was a, an altar upon which incense was burned all day, uh, filling the room with a, with a, a sweet-smelling savor, if you would, a, a beautiful scent and smell. Coming into the, we're back into the holy place now. On one side, you have what's called the table of showbread, or literally the bread of his presence. This, again, was a wooden table overlaid with pure gold. And on that table, you had uh, every single week, 12 fresh loaves of bread were placed upon this table. And the day before the Sabbath, the priest would eat the old loaves of bread and put brand new loaves of bread, 12, one representing each tribe of Israel, continually replenishing the bread that was on this table as an ever-reminding uh, reminder of God's presence and provision for his people. On the other side of the, uh, of the holy place, you have the golden lampstand. We've probably seen these before. They're a very common Jewish symbol, uh, otherwise known as the menorah. This is that seven-pronged lampstand made of pure gold, and it was to be burning light continually to provide light in the tabernacle so the priests could find their way around. And, of course, eventually they could find, the high priest could find his way to the Holy of Holies. Come outside that tent, and you have, just before the entrance into the tabernacle, you have this big bowl called the laver. Uh, this was outside the tent, and before any priest was to enter into this uh, holy place, they had to go through a series of ceremonial washings because they couldn't go in to the, uh, to the tabernacle unclean. They had to be washed thoroughly and cleanly before they entered into the tabernacle to perform their priestly duties. Matter of fact, it was so important that the Bible says it was under the threat of death if they walked into the tabernacle unwashed. And then the very first uh, piece of furniture that you would notice when you walked into the court which surrounded the tabernacle was something called the brazen altar. Now, I had to look into this to see what the significance was of everything else being made of gold and why is this altar made of brass. I thought there was great spiritual significance and all I could figure out is that Brass 
withstood heat a lot better than gold, and that's about it. So that's the, uh, the significance of that detail. Because upon this altar, essentially, think of a gigantic barbecue. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, uh, an altar that was burning continually. As every day, the, the priests would make sacrifices for the people. And inside the court of this tabernacle were tables where bulls and goats and lambs and, and all these things were brought by the people and constantly killed and placed upon the altar. Burnt offerings and peace offerings and grain offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings. And it was in this courtyard that that's where the people could go. But that's as far as they could go. That's all they could get to. And this whole courtyard was set apart from the camp by a fence and This is the pattern that God made for the people of Israel. And so you can imagine, as worship life began to start in Israel, you would see the brazen altar constantly billowing smoke as it was burning continuously. The courtyard was a buzz of priests making sacrifices Offering these things on this brazen altar. But you could only see so far. You could stand in the courtroom. You could see the sacrifice being made. You were confronted with the reality that every single day something had to be done to pay for your sins and the sins of the people. But you could not go any further than just standing outside of the court. That's the pattern that God gave to the people of Israel. But what's the picture of all this? The purpose, remember, is that fellowship and worship. The pattern is all of these uh, instruments and furnishings that God gave. But what's the picture that we see when you think about all of these significant pieces of furniture? What does this all mean? Remember, God's purpose essentially has not changed, but the form has. Uh, The God who sat on the throne in the tabernacle is still the same God that rules today. Uh, He is still enthroned on high, surrounded by the cherubim. He is still the Lord of all the earth. He is still the same God who demands perfect obedience to the law. And he is the same God who, uh, the same just God who punishes sin. He is still worthy of our worship and he still desires fellowship to dwell with his people and for his people to dwell with him. Israel lived with this visible presence of God in their midst, who was either accepting their worship when done rightly or rejecting it when not. And we have lots of instances in Scripture where people tried to worship with strange fire or various different things, and God rejected them, rejected their offerings. The glory of God was with them, but it was not in them. And eventually, because of their rebellion and rejection of the covenants of God, God's glory eventually departed from Israel and they became Ichabod until one day the glory of God returned to earth. In John chapter 1, verse 14, I read it earlier, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The glory of God came back, veiled not in a tent, but in human flesh. The glory of God was contained there in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the tabernacle and we see all the furnishings and we see all the the detail, what we get is this amazing picture 
that God was trying to imprint on the minds and hearts of his people so that when the picture finally came together and the substance, the, the true substance, the true Savior actually came, the people of Israel were supposed to say, aha, we get it. We see it. But of course, we know that they didn't. They not only rejected the picture, they rejected the reality when he came. You see, what you get when you walk into that court is you are confronted, first of all, with that brazen altar. That stark reality that you cannot come to God. You cannot fellowship with God. You cannot worship God while there is sin to be dealt with. It was a constant reminder in the eyes of the people that in order to come to God, sin had to be paid for. And as they watched that altar just dripped in blood and sacrifices as the people received temporary, if you would, or a picture of forgiveness, this was not a pretty sight. You imagine, like, it's like an abattoir. Sacrifices and blood and animals and death in front of their eyes. A lot of people don't like this type of preaching. They don't like this picture. That's why they uh, stay away from the Old Testament. But you see, we cannot come to God if we try to bypass the altar. You can't go to God. You can't take that next step unless sin is dealt with. You see, a lot of people, they wish they could bypass that ugliness of death and sin and think that they can wash themselves clean by the labor and go into the presence of God. But that is not possible. This is why many people find the cross offensive, not just because it was violent, because it speaks to them of their desperate need for forgiveness, that my sin was so heinous and was so despicable and so horrible that Christ had to die in my place. He had to pay the penalty. We know that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. That none of those sacrifices could ever fully take away sin, but that there was a sacrifice which actually could. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 10, we read of this. He says, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offered continually year by year, making those who approach perfect for when they would not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. And by this, uh, by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, Christ is that brazen altar. He is the once for all sacrifice for sin. He is the one who takes us 
to that next piece of furniture, the laver. You see, not only does sin, in order for you to worship God and fellowship with God, not only does sin need to be paid for and forgiven, but it needs to be removed. It needs to be cleansed. You cannot come to God in the stink and the, and the filthiness of your flesh and of your sin. You need to be cleansed of your sin. You need to be washed. This is what David understood. David understood in Psalm 51 in his prayer of repentance. He didn't just ask for forgiveness, but in verse 2 he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And as we see this labor, this washings that are going on, we are reminded that if we walk in the light, as he in the light is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You see, you can't come to God unless God has cleansed you of your sin, unless he has regenerated your heart, unless he has made you a new person on the inside, unless he has cleansed your conscience, purified your desires and given you a new heart. That's what you need to go into the presence and the fellowship of God. Now, it's interesting. Remember that the people in the Old Testament were only allowed in the court area. They could see the brazen altar. They could see the labor, but they couldn't go any further. Only the priests, remember, could go into that next place, the sanctuary, the, that, that holy place. That was a place for priests. But are we not reminded in the New Testament that through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the cleansing power of his blood, that he has made us both kings and priests? The priesthood of all believers was one of the cries of the Protestant Reformation and the wonderful truths that we remind ourselves in the New Testament that every single one of us, if you are a child of God, if you have been born again, cleansed of your sin, you are essentially a priest of the living God. You can walk into that next place if you would. Uh, This is the miracle of the new birth. And as we walk in, we see that 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 dark place is filled with light. And we're reminded that our minds, which were once darkened by sin, have now been set free by the light of Christ. As the scripture says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commands the light to shine out. Out of darkness, who has shown in your hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is the one of the remarkable truths about being a Christian, is it not? That when God regenerates your soul, when he washes you clean, so many people say, you know what? I see the world totally different now. My eyes are opened. I can understand. I can see. I have a new new light, if you would. God opens our eyes and we see him for who he is and we see the world as it is. We see the light. As we look to our left, we see the bread of his presence. We see a a God who is continually providing for his people who will never leave us nor forsake us, who continually provides for the needs of his people. There will never be a time when God's provision for your life will run out, when God's grace in your life is not sufficient. 
But we see that and we understand that. Next we see as we come through, we see the veil, that large curtain which separated the priests even from the very presence of God. Yet in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, the Bible says that when Jesus died on that cross, that the, behold, the veil of the temple in the temple of Jerusalem was literally torn from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were spilt. What's the significance of something ripping from the top to the bottom? First of all, no man could rip the veil. It was too hard to rip, but it's ripped from the top to the bottom, which means God separated that veil. He tore open the veil. He opened the way. You can imagine the priest serving in the temple that day. And all of a sudden, boom, this veil rips in two. And there they are standing Looking into the Holy of Holies, we know the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there yet because Indiana Jones hadn't discovered it yet. But, um, but nevertheless, the veil was there. What do we see? Jesus Christ was God incarnate, wrapped in human flesh. He was the true tabernacle of God. Come to earth once again, and upon his once-for-all sacrifice, he tore the veil and opened the way And made the way clear. There was nothing separating us from God anymore. And there in front of us is the very presence of Almighty God. Who sits above the law. Whose holiness is so great. That to be in his presence would certainly bring death. But as we read In the scriptures, in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10, that Christ who entered into that holiest, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by what? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which is consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God does everything for a reason. And if you can see up there. The way that God set out the furniture of the tabernacle from his perspective makes the shape of a what? A cross. Where God's tent sat in the in the camp right in the middle. And as the tribes would camp some to the north, some to the east, some to the west and some to the south. You see that from God's perspective in his plan was always the cross. The way to God is through the cross. You can't get there any other way. You can't bypass the cross. You must come and be confronted with the reality that the Savior there hanging on that tree, bleeding his very last drop of blood, taking upon himself the burden and the punishment and the penalty of your sin is the only way that you can come all the way To the very person of God. You can't go around it. You can't go through it. You can't go. Sorry. You can't go uh, around it. You can't go underneath it. You can't go over it. You must come through Jesus. God planned salvation from eternity past. When you see all of this, you see 
that in the mind of God was always the cross. And we remember that every time we pray, you are entering the holiest of holies. You come to speak to the creator of the universe. And the only reason he hears your prayer and the only reason why he allows you to speak with him and for him to speak with you through his word is because of what Christ has done on your behalf. This was the picture that God was painting for the people of Israel. They should have seen it. They should have seen him. They should have watched him die and understood what was going on. But their minds and their eyes were darkened. And my prayer for you tonight, and I don't know where you are, but that God would open your eyes and open your minds and open your hearts to see the beauty and the wisdom of God. And this perfect picture, which he painted for his people and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the way to God is open. It's not open through your righteousness. It's open through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with these wonderful promises, let me just read in verse 23 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, knowing that we can draw near with a true heart of full assurance having our hearts sprinkled with an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters, the writer of Hebrews gives us a benediction, if you would. Therefore, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and he is faithful. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. God is coming back. He dwells today in the hearts of his children, in the hearts of those who have been changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one day he's coming back to dwell with his people. To make all things new. To invite us into a perfect fellowship and a perfect worship. And what a day that will be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time together. We thank you for this beautiful picture. May these things be etched on our hearts and minds. And Father, we thank you that we can approach you now. Not through our own righteousness, but through the righteousness of Christ. We thank you that you have torn the veil, that you've been the sacrifice, that you've washed us and made us clean, that you've given us the light of the gospel, that you provide everything that we need, that we have all the blessings and spiritual blessings that we need in Christ Jesus, and that you literally take us to the very presence of our God. My prayer tonight, if there's someone here in whose hearts you do not dwell, That, God, you would open their eyes, open their minds, let them behold Christ, the suffering, sovereign Savior, and fall to their knees and cry out and believe and trust in all that you have done on our behalf. 
We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.